Amen. Well, good morning again. Welcome to Hillside. If you guys would turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 7 this morning. And as many of you are aware, um, we are in a series in Ecclesiastes. We're actually in our fifth week of this series that we've called Under the Sun. And Solomon, who is the writer of this book, Ecclesiastes, um, he is working through a theme. And maybe you've caught on to this theme. We've definitely mentioned it a few different times. But the theme that Solomon is working through is that life is empty apart from God. Life is empty apart from God. That is, if you are not living your life for the glory of God, then life is meaningless. That's the thesis of Solomon's book. He would say that life is empty, it is unsatisfying, it is unfulfilling, it is futile, and it's even despairing if you live it apart from God. Solomon's really, he set out to prove this thesis that life is empty apart from God to be true, and so he's gone through a lot of different things so far in the book. And I think for us, this thesis that's set forth by Solomon is really very challenging to agree with, even if we do agree with it. Because we like to believe that we can find true meaning apart from God, our Creator, just look at the way we live sometimes. Solomon knows that this is true about us, he knows that this is true about himself, and so he spent the last four chapters that we've studied together elaborating on his claim that life is empty apart from God. He's explored different routes that we try to take to supply meaning apart from the eternal saving relationship with the one true living God who created us. And last week, Pastor Dan got the hard job of preaching chapters 3 and 4. I always give Dan the hard passages. But we looked at life and we explored injustice and oppression that continues to exist in this life even in a fallen world. And maybe you would ask the question, well, why would Solomon go there? How does that fit with this theme? Well, because he's wanting again to point out to us the fact that if you are looking for satisfaction in this life or from this life, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Satisfaction in this life cannot come from life under the sun. It comes from someone above this life. And so today, before we get going in chapter 5, I want us to take note once again that this book of Ecclesiastes, it's a really difficult book in the Bible. Today's section of Scripture and last week's section of Scripture and really the rest of this series, please come back, but it could be really hard for a lot of us to hear. I laid actually in my bed on Monday night, not sleeping very well, kind of just biting the inside of my mouth. Does anyone ever do that? Um, because I was wondering, how are we going to preach the rest of Ecclesiastes? It can be hard. It's a tough book. It can be difficult for us. And here's the reason that I believe it's difficult. It's convicting. I was thinking this week that I really do hope that as we come on a Sunday morning to Hillside, that every Sunday is convicting in some way for all of us. I, I hope that God's Word convicts us, and I hope that we leave here encouraged as well. But I want to caution us that 
as we go to God's Word week in and week out, and hopefully daily on our own, I want to caution us that, it's, that, um, that we should not come into church finding ourselves desiring to hear the Word of God in order to get this happy feeling. And by happy, I mean this fleeting feeling or this burst of energy that comes and it goes. And ultimately, this happy feeling does not supply what we really need. I think it's very important for all of us to know that the Bible isn't a book that we study in an effort to be made happy. By the world's standards, I would say. But the Bible is a book that we study in an effort to be made holy. Which, it's, and this is very important, holiness offers all of us a direct byproduct, and that byproduct is actually lasting joy. It's what we really want, and maybe some of us don't know it, but the satisfaction and the joy that comes from holiness is so much better than the world's happiness. A hard reality for some of us is this, that sometimes the Bible is going to say things that you and I don't like to hear. And maybe we don't understand right away. And sometimes we'll try to put things from Scripture into a category that we title like, oh, that's part of the Old Testament or that's legalism. And we try to just put it away in that category. Sometimes we try to put scriptures into categories, but if we desire to become progressively sanctified or progressively more holy or progressively more like Christ, which is really where all of our joy is found, then we are going to welcome the convicting words of scripture. And so today in this passage that we're going to look at, Solomon actually pauses for a minute and he turns his observations to the people who worship God. He turns his observations to the people that are going into church. He's going to focus this morning on those of us who enter the house of worship. What's going to be happening in our text is that Solomon has observed that the crowds that are coming and going into the church or the temple of his day, he finds himself watching these people and the activities that they're making for God. And and he does what he does. And it becomes apparent to him that all is not well, even in the church. Why? Well, because he notices that even church can become a routine for us, something that we go to for happiness. Even at church, we can forget what we're actually doing, and we do it for ourselves. As Solomon looks at the worshipers in his day, he notices that people have forgotten where they are and why they're there. Before we jump into chapter 5, which we'll get to really quickly here, let me ask you guys a question about worship or about church. As you enter into a place like this, what are the keys to a good worship service for you? What are the keys to a good worship service for you? This is a question actually that we ask a lot in the church. I've worked on a few different church staffs over my life, and it's a question sometimes that we will spend an entire Monday on after a church service. What did we do well yesterday, and what are we trying to do next week? What are the keys to a good worship service? How do we serve people in worship? And I imagine that to answer this question, some of us would say something like this, the music makes a worship service good or not good. Don't raise your hand, Noah's in here somewhere. Some would say the preaching is essential to a good worship service. 
we might make our judgments on these types of questions. Was the pastor engaging? Did he have good jokes? Of course. Was, was the sermon practical enough? Was the coffee good? Did I find a parking spot? And here, that can be a problem. Etc., etc. These are the things we ask. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, and I believe it to be true. It says, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Meaning what? Well, this statement is saying that what you and I were created for was to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's our chief end. We will find our deepest satisfaction, and don't let these words just sort of Go by your ears. We will find our deepest satisfaction in this reality when we glorify God and when we enjoy Him. And so by that standard, a good worship service is when God is glorified and enjoyed. But this is not what our world would tell us, is it? The world that we live in says that you will be most happy if God glorifies you and enjoys you forever. Our world would tell us that we are the object of worship, and when we are the object of worship, then we are happy. Here's the clear reality that we all need to hear this morning, though. Self-worship is destructive, and it's vanity. Self-worship is actually the biggest lie and trap that Satan has been perpetuating since the Garden of Eden. It's where all of our other issues come from. And I wonder how many of us would be willing to admit that sometimes worship becomes all about me. I know that's true for me. I know that when I enter into a worship service, I find myself asking questions like, is this good for me? Does this serve me? Do I feel good when this happens? And worship can often become about, my, become about my desires and my likes and my preferences and what I want. And so in our passage today, what Solomon is doing is he is going to do what he does, and he's going to show us that worship is really not at all about you. And that life lived with me at the center is not good for me. And God in his goodness in our passage today calls us to glorify him and enjoy him forever It is what is best for us, so how should we approach God as we enter into worship? Well, Solomon answers that question in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, and the very first thing that he tells us comes from verse 1, and that is that we should guard our steps and listen. Look at verse 1, it says this, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are, or that they are doing evil. So the context here in Ecclesiastes 5 is that there's a worshiper walking into the house of God, the holy sanctuary, and in Solomon's day, that, the house of God would have been the temple in Jerusalem that held the presence of God. But really what Solomon is saying here applies to any sacred space that's set aside for the worship of God. And so what he's saying is, as we go into worship, he's telling us to watch our step, guard your steps. 
We understand this expression, watch your step, don't we? When we exit a bus, the bus driver will say something like this, please watch your step on your way out of the bus. Or when you're getting off a plane, a flight attendant will say something like this, thank you for flying with us, please watch your step, right? We've all heard it. When someone tells you to watch your step, what are they doing? They're warning you of a potential danger just ahead that you had better pay very close attention to. When you were growing up, maybe like me, there was a time or two that your dad had to pull you aside, maybe in a public setting, and say, you are walking on very thin ice, buddy. You better watch your step. Anybody else had that happen? And when dad says that, holy cow, all right, time to watch my steps. But what Solomon is doing here is something very similar for us when we enter into God's house. He is saying that there is a right way and a wrong way to enter the courts of thanksgiving in the gates of praise. Solomon's first exhortation to us is that before we worship, we must check our mental attitude and motive for worship. We should consider our steps as we enter into God's presence. In Solomon's context, the people of God, what they did is they offered sacrifices to God for the forgiveness of their sins. But the issue that Solomon sees is that he's pointing out for them that many of them were just going through the motions of sacrifice. They were just entering the temple and doing what they did. It was a form of manipulation to them. If I do what God tells me to do, then I'm going to get something out of God. They thought that if they went into the temple and they performed this ritual, then God would give them a favor, but their hearts were far from God. They were guilty of religious form without spiritual substance. For you and I, we can actually fall victim to this kind of thinking too as we come into church. We can find ourselves going through the motions of worship. We do religious things, but our hearts are not in it. And it's possible for people to show up to a place of worship week after week and year after year and never really change. Why? Because we adopt this mindset that our religious rituals and activities are what God wants from us. That somehow these rituals are going to gain us purpose in life and favor with God. And when we do all this, God isn't glorified. God only becomes a means for us. He is like a vending machine. He's not the point of our worship. We're the point of our worship. We're actually showing up for us. Samuel actually said something very similar to this, to what Solomon said in 1 Samuel 15, 22. He says this, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. This is really exactly what Solomon is saying in Ecclesiastes 5, 1. He's saying, guarding Your steps in worship means listening to God and obeying Him. Not just going through the motions, guarding our steps means that the right way for you and me to approach God in worship is to come with our ears wide open to His Word. The questions then that we should ask ourselves as we enter into worship every time we're here are questions like these, am I ready to listen to the voice of God? 
Is my heart open to spiritual instruction? Are my ears attentive to the message that I will hear from the Bible? When Solomon says, guard your steps, he is saying, proceed with reverence as you step into the presence of God. Watch where your next step is going to be. Make preparations to approach God well, which means don't enter worship casually or unprepared. Don't go through the motions. I would love to gently encourage us this morning, and not at all in a legalistic way, but in a way that I genuinely think could make a difference for all of us. And I believe this to be true. It is best for us to come to worship prepared to worship. How how do we come into worship prepared to worship God? Well, pray before you come so that when you come here, you're ready to pray. Sleep before you come so that you will stay alert when you come. Read the word before you come so that your heart will be soft when you worship. Come hungry, come willing, come expecting God to speak. Come anticipating a memorable experience with the creator of the universe. Alexander McLaren, who's an old preacher, says it this way. Fruitful and acceptable worship begins before it begins. Fruitful and acceptable worship begins before it begins. Solomon says, approach God in worship first by guarding your steps and listening. Notice where you're stepping. Come prepared to worship. Come prepared to hear from God. And then secondly, and more briefly, he says this, watch your mouth. So he says, watch your step, and then he says, watch your mouth. Look at verses 2 through 3. They say this, Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. What a statement. I mean, come on, that's the best. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. So Solomon moves from the topic of guarding your steps and entering into the house of God to the topic of prayer and worship. And he says, when you come before the Lord, do not be rash with your words. How many of us can sometimes think that if I just pile up word after word after word, then God will hear my prayers and answer them? Jesus actually warns against this method of praying in Matthew chapter 6. We've studied this before in the Lord's Prayer, but Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8 say this, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And Solomon says, God is in heaven and you are on earth. Meaning what? Meaning that when you pray, consider the vast qualitative distinction between you and God. The distinction between you and God and me and God is as far removed as anything that you might be able to conceive. Why? Because God is infinite and you are finite. He's immortal and you're mortal. He is invisible and you are visible. He is spirit and you are flesh. 
He's almighty and you are weak. He is holy and you are sinful. He is pure and we are impure. He is omniscient. We are ignorant. He is unchangeable and we are fickle. He is faithful and we are unfaithful. He is love in all of its fullness. And we are at best partial in our love. So Solomon is keying us in on that fact that God is not your buddy next door. He's not the big guy upstairs. He's not your homeboy. He's the infinite, eternal, holy, just, good, all-powerful, all-wise, and all-true God. He is your faithful friend and caring father, but he is always more than that, too. He's the chief authority in your life, and I have to say it this way. As I was studying this week, in my 20 years of being a pastor, the biggest issue that I can see facing the church, the modern church, is this. We try hard to make God in our own image. For God to be good, we believe that he needs to be just like me. And that's just not true. This truth about who God is and who we are has a very practical implications for what we say when we pray and when we worship. We need to know our place remembering both who God is and who we are. Look at how Isaiah says it in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. These are actually God's words. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God says, I'm in heaven and you are on earth. A good summary of everything that we've been studying today so far comes from the book of James, where James says this in James 1.19. He says, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. Guard your steps, watch your mouth, and then Solomon has a third exhortation for us as we enter into worship, and that is this, that we would keep our vows. Keep your vows. Look at verse 4 with me. It says this, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's important for us to understand that Solomon is pointing to one specific kind of vow. He is saying, pay the vows that you make before God. Solomon says that if you make a vow to God, then you had better do what you say you're going to do. And some of us might sit here this morning and struggle and say, well, how have I made vows to God before that I haven't paid? How, when have I ever made a promise to God that I haven't kept? Well, maybe something like this has happened to you. You've said something like this, God, if you get me out of this mess, I promise that I'm going to stop this or that I'm going to start serving you with my life. Or God, if you will take away my cancer, or you'll get me a new job, or you'll give me a new spouse, or you'll get me my kids out of trouble, then I will walk with you more closely. Or maybe some of you have been caught up in a moment of enthusiasm where you've heard the word of God preached, and you're convicted, and inside your heart you say, yes, I need that. I need community, or I need to confess my sin to a friend, or I need to get rid of my hidden sin so that I can be free and walk in the light. And then you leave the service with the best of intentions, but you never follow through with them. You never pay what you vowed. Think about what Solomon is saying here. 
My guess is, at least I know it's true for me, but my guess is that many of us have made vows to God. We get baptized and we say, I'm going to live for God. Or parents, maybe you dedicate your children to the Lord and say you're going to raise them for Him. Or spouses, you commit your lives to one another before God. And we make commitments to read God's word. We make commitments to maintain purity. And Solomon is saying worship should not ever be flippant. Do not make your vows lightly. Follow through with them. Obey them immediately. It is much easier to make a promise than it is to keep it. And so Solomon continues in verses 5 through 6 by saying this, It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? So Solomon says, it's better for you to keep quiet and not utter anything rash or foolish. This is really important. I think that we sometimes forget this. We can make vows before God flippantly, even in the church. And this is why, for me, if you were to say to me, Robbie, would you perform a wedding for me or for my kids or whatever? I would say only if you do six months of premarital counseling. And you might think, gosh, that's a huge hurdle. But I'm helping you make a vow before God. And it's important, and it is not flippant. When we have a wedding, we're not just doing some sort of cultural transaction or some sort of tradition. For the believer, we are making a vow before God. And Solomon is telling us that the words that we voice to God matter to God. Our vows are important. Solomon closes this passage on worship with verse 7 by giving us the key to it all and telling us this. Stand in awe of God. Stand in awe of God. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. God is the one you must fear. I want to focus on the words, but God is the one you must fear, as we close here. Solomon describes here the heart attitude that we ought to bring to everything that we say and everything that we do in worship. Guard your steps, watch your mouth, keep your vows. They all depend on the fear of the Lord. What is that hard attitude that Solomon calls us to? He says the fear of God is hugely important. Solomon says stand in awe of God. It's really important for us to understand that he is not saying be in terror before God. Terror is a reaction of guilt in the face of God's holiness. Terror causes us to run away from God in despair. God never is calling you to run from Him in despair. Solomon is definitely not urging you and I to run away from God. And we're going to talk a lot about the fear of the Lord before the end of this series. But for today, Solomon is calling us to stand in awe of God. Be filled with a sense of breathtaking awe at the character of God. Hear this so clearly. The fear of God or awe of God's character is fundamental to our worship. 
How do I guard my steps? How do I watch my mouth? How do I keep my vows? You have to stand in awe of God. To fear God, to stand in awe of Him, is to recognize His might and His majesty. It is to acknowledge that He is in heaven and we are on earth, as verse 2 said. To fear God is to recognize that He is God, He is the source of our worship, and we are not the source of our worship. It is to say with the psalmist, for who is in the skies, who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? I'll imagine in a sermon like this, at a point like this, you can feel a little bit discouraged. And some of you might be struggling right here with the fear of the Lord part, especially. And we like to say things like this. Well, I don't really like this kind of Christianity, this fear stuff. Isn't that Old Testament stuff? I thought that we were in the New Testament now. I don't, I don't like you telling me to guard my steps. I don't like watching my mouth. I really don't like keeping my vows. We're Jesus' people. None of this should apply to us. We don't need to fear God. I think it's really important for us to know that Jesus himself said this in Matthew 10, verse 28. He said, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is talking about God. He's not talking about Satan. The Bible never tells us to fear Satan. These are Jesus' words. Jesus, the gentle, loving shepherd, he issues a word of warning to us, as does Solomon today. He says, fear God in this way. Believe that God is all-powerful. Believe that he is in heaven and you are on earth. Worship him in awe. Fear him in this way and you will have nothing else to fear. But if you and I neglect to fear God in this way, if we neglect to stand in awe of God, we're going to fear everything else in life. Everything. I think that some of us still might at this point be saying, well, I don't want to have a God like that. Can I just gently ask all of us, what kind of God do you want to have? Would you rather serve a God who's a bobblehead that you can glue to your dashboard and just shakes his head yes all the time? Are you looking for a God that is manageable and non-fearable? Because in all honesty, and again, as gently as I can say it, that kind of God is useless. We worship what we stand in awe of. Solomon is pointing this reality out to us today that we, when we stand in awe of the greatness of God, then we will come to worship with expectancy. We will be ready to listen to what he has to say to us. Why? Because he's God. We will be careful with what we say. We will limit our speech to the words that are pleasing to him. We will give God what he deserves, including whatever time or talent or treasure we have promised to give him. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, it's really written to help us take God more seriously when we worship. Solomon is pointing out that worship is that is that, that is the kind of worship that is not vanity. And this passage is really a gift to us because our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that is where the joy is found. And so this passage is a gift to us. Worship team can come on up. I'd like to share one last thing with us this morning as we close that does not come directly from Ecclesiastes 5. But I think it's important as we end this morning, and that is this. Through Christ, we can approach God with confident reverence. I imagine that as we go through all of those steps, guard your, guard your heart or your steps as you enter into worship, watch your mouth, keep your vows. I imagine that all of us could admit that we've been careless with our words before God in the presence of God. We have not approached God carefully and that Plenty of us have failed to keep our vows before God. In fact, all of us probably have. And we might end a sermon like this and think, well, then what should I do? What should I do? I'm a failure. How do I approach God? Well, in Solomon's day, there was still a way for you to approach God. They had the temple system that gave specific regulations for how you were to approach God and seek His forgiveness. But that system was temporary. They would go and they would offer a sacrifice, right? But it was temporary because it could never once for all cleanse the worshiper and reconcile him with God. But Jesus, and this is the good news, Jesus is the better high priest. He's the better sacrifice who can cleanse and reconcile us for all time. And when he died on the cross, not only for all of our sins, but also for all of our empty religion and all of our empty promises, what happened? The veil that was separating you and me from the presence of God was torn in two from top to bottom, showing that man was once, had once again had access to God. So now what? Now what for us? Well, we can come with both confidence and awe before the living God. Through Jesus Christ, we can approach God with reverent confidence. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 23. They say this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's Jesus Christ, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Today, We've been called to worship God. How do we begin as a people? We can cast ourselves on the mercy of God. We can pray that He will forgive us for everything that we have failed to do, and we can ask Him to accept us through Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the only one who ever kept all the promises to God, including his own vow to offer a holy sacrifice, the sacrifice of his body for our sins. By the mercy of Jesus, we are forgiven for our sins, for all of our failures. And now, by the grace of Jesus, we have help in keeping our commitments to God. When we pray for the grace to follow through, we are praying to a Savior who knows what it means to keep a commitment, who did everything he promised, even to death. And because of him, we can humbly approach the throne of grace with confidence. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word this morning. God, thank you for the opportunity to learn about approaching you in worship. And God, this morning we are so grateful that we can approach you with confidence because of Jesus Christ. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.